but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hi everybody, welcome to the Body Serve. Guess what this is? Number 100. 100. It's our Benjamin episode. <laughs> Benjamin's I, episode plural? Yes. Okay. I can't believe we made it this far. Yeah. And I we've said that before, but 100 is a lot. That means we've sat in front of this computer for what? 6,000 hours. 200 hours at least <laughs> recording. 6,000. Six, well, do the math. We average an hour an episode. Mm. So that's 60 minutes. It's 6,000 minutes. That's where I was getting confused. Uh-huh. Yeah. We've thrown out thousands of intros. So add that to the tally. Uh-huh. Anyway, welcome to the 100th episode. Thank you all for uh, for helping us get this far. And we're going to have a very nice celebratory dinner after this. We are. <clears throat> Somebody brought home a lobster. I did, yeah. We've never had whole lobsters cooked at home. I've never had them whole, period, in my life. Have you? Uh, no. You've, I don't think you've so. You've never had a whole lobster no. to yourself? We fancy now. <laughs> so what's going to be going down on this 100th episode is we asked everyone for questions because we wanted to do another mailbag segment. Uh, they're really fun for us. I don't know if they are as fun for you all, but uh, but we got a lot of questions and a lot of great questions. Like, our listeners are very astute. Yeah, we tossed around a few ideas privately, but then settled on a more low-key episode. Mm -hmm. I just kind of wanted to talk. <laughs> just chat. <laughs> you didn't get any of those Ask James questions, those life self-help questions. Oh, I forgot about that. But we did get some personal questions, which I think we'll save to the end. Okay. From our friends. <laughs> where, where do you want to start? Um... Hmm. Okay. Let, we'll just start at the first one I wrote down. Our listener, Grace Onions, asked, what is our dream tournament to cover as press? And which player would you like to interview on either the ATP or WTA? So first tournament, or first question, which tournament would you love to cover as press? You're asking me or you're going to answer? Both. Okay. So at this point, I'm oh. saying who's going first? Well, I would say my dream tournaments to cover would be... Rome and Wimbledon. Wimbledon? Yeah. Wimbledon, but it says I mean, cover as press. Yeah. It's dream tournament. Yeah, well, I, I'm just saying I haven't, I haven't heard good things about being press at Wimbledon. Per S se. Still, it's, it's Wimbledon. Okay. For me, it would be any of the European tournaments, frankly. It doesn't have to be a big tournament. I just want to travel. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want... I wouldn't say a Grand Slam. I feel like that's very overwhelming mm, yeah yeah I can i'd see rather that. go to a slam first as a fan before i cover it put it that way okay well i would say if i were working for like the new york times i would love to cover the grand slams you you aim for the stars <laughs> <laughs> which player is your dream interview eventually i'd like to interview andrea petkovic we've tried and failed many times <laughs> Well, you did actually talk to one of your dream interviews. It wasn't a one-on-one -on -one interview, but you did ask her a few questions. Venus in yeah. Charleston, yeah. Yeah. I would say, um, I was thinking about this, and actually, 
active players, obviously Serena Williams, because I think she's fascinating as law, you know, in addition to being the greatest. Uh, but I would say actually Nick Kyrgios, because I feel that he tells the truth for better or for worse. And he's a, he's an interesting interview in press. And if he could get him one-on-one and really candid, I think that would be amazing. But for retired players, Martina Navratilova was, is like so easy. I didn't even have to think about it. For retired players would be Billie Jean for me. Mm. And we'll talk more about that because we saw Battle of the Sexes for the first time a couple nights ago. And that's, Finally. That's partly where that comes from as well. What's the theme of the podcast, asks Anna Marseille. Mm-hmm. And I think when she asked this question, I don't think she meant, meant it in such a broad meta way, which is how I want to treat it. I think she meant, what is the theme of the next episode? Oh, See, I, I, I could like, be wrong. I read it like you read it. <laughs> right. So, but I, I think it's a good opportunity to kind of reiterate who we are and what we do. And... Uh, and what we hope we bring to the table that makes us different than others. You want to take a crack at that? Well, this podcast is unique, I think, in that it's us, right? That mm. first and foremost, there's that. We bring that to the table, <laughs> for better that or worse. That sounds so arrogant. It, well, for better or worse. Right? Okay. That's what makes us different from a lot of other podcasts. You know, well, or 10 years of built chemistry in mm. our private life. And, and our shared histories with tennis as well as fans. Yes. You know, it's, it's unique. But also I think that we come at it through a lens of intersectional feminism. Yeah, yeah. And then it branches off into many other things in terms of how we look at and cover tennis. Mm-hmm. I think if you want the scores and you want great tennis analysis from, you know, tactical standpoint... There are podcasts that do that really well. And that's just never going to be us. The only time we did that was this year at the French Open. We did a, a, a fairly good job, I would say, in breaking down what Rafa did mm-hmm. well, technically. Right. So for me, what I'm interested in and what I hope comes across on the podcast is broader issues that sort of float above and through tennis. Because we both believe that sport is political, the personal is political, these things are inescapably intertwined and that sport brings up a lot of thorny and ugly and complex issues like racism and sexism and homophobia right which we're going to talk about a bit later but to me looking at sport just as backhands and forehands and points and who won is boring but it's also incomplete how is that yeah i think that about (laughs) covers it (laughs) all right do you see an out gay player on the ATP in your lifetime? Scholz talks tennis. That's a great question. And it's something that you and I have wrestled with a lot personally. And I don't know uh, how much we've actually talked about it on the show. So first, you have to acknowledge the tennis players who have come out. And of course, we know Billie Jean King and Martina Navratilova were, were sort of forced out of the closet in the early 80s. But since then, there have been a lot of openly gay female tennis players. Uh huh. Active and former. Yes. Now, Grand the, Slam champions, too. Mm hmm. I, I mean, legends of the game. But at this point, the only male tennis players who have come out are retired. So the first was Francisco Rodriguez, who was ranked as high as 373, who came out after he retired. 
And recently, Brian Vahaley, who uh, I remember actually played fairly recently while I was still watching tennis. And he was ranked in the 60s, I believe. That was his career high. He's an American. Um, He's an investment banker now. He lives with his husband and their two children. And he came out recently. There was a profile in Outsports. So these are important steps, but where are the active players? Correct us if there have been others who have come out and we just missed. There's one in particular who would be the most high profile who we don't really know for sure if he's out. You may want to deduce that from his Instagram, but we're not going to call names. (laughs) Of course, there's a lot of rumors, but... Very famous gay friends yachting all over the place. Um, why are we still waiting? Well, uh, I think there's a few things. Uh, sport is extremely homophobic. Even the most enlightened sports out there in the most enlightened countries are just not welcome places for men, especially to be out and gay. And to be clear, tennis is not one of those enlightened sports. No, definitely not. Well, Justin Gimmelstab put it better than we could. He said the locker room is not a welcome place for gay people and that men get into sports because they want to what did he say talk about chicks drink beer and have fun or some shit to that point and i can speak to this personally even though it was a a different climate growing up in jamaica like there are other you know things to consider of course but when you you start in youth sport and you progress up the ranks you start to imagine yourself as a professional player. What would that look like? Mm. And if you are in the closet, if you're a young teenager going through all those range of emotions, struggling to come out or what have you, and you're seeing all these cues from your teammates, from the, the superstructure of sports, what have you, media, and you can't quite gel the idea of you as a professional athlete, and being out and what it would take, the personal sacrifice it would take Mm. to get there. Or even maybe you can't even visualize it, period. And so that kind of wears down on you in your development as an athlete itself, Mm. right? It's very dispiriting to then take the steps needed to progress through the ranks when you don't necessarily see the, the rainbow at the end of the bag what is it the tunnel the light at the end of the tunnel (laughs) (laughs) no but your point is a good one that because there is yet no visibility it is literally impossible to to visualize what would it look like for for me to come out and be a professional player Uh, uh we don't know and the other thing is like the locker room is inhospitable by its very nature but what are you supposed to think when you have vocal professional players like Stakhovsky, Fonini, Tipsarevich, um, Gimmelstab, who's not a player but is much venerated in tennis circles at this point? There's, like, where are the players? Where are the male players making it a more friendly place for gay people and for gay fans, which I also think is important? They're not there. The, the ones who have come out against homophobia are retired. Well, this is where it becomes a bit weird and absurd to me that there hasn't been a more concerted and open push to make tennis a more inclusive environment on the ATP. 
mm-hmm. because you go to any tennis tournament and gays are out in droves yeah. and this cannot be lost on the players they must know that a good percentage of their fans are are gay people right disproportionately yes if we are what five or six percent of the population we're much more than that at tennis tournaments i think that's obvious to anyone who's been there there's no push at all from tennis leadership to make it more inclusive sport and i'm even not impressed by the wta lately but the atp especially uh for me the the fact that tennis players are kind of independent contractors and they're not employees and even if they were employees there are really no structures in place to protect them the job security is tenuous obviously there's no union uh, the atp is not a union it represents players and tournament directors which by definition is a conflict of interest it's not a, a labor union there's just uh there are no protections there's no guarantees that if you come out you're going to be supported by by the league basically and something i've always wondered about the the quandary of having an openly gay tennis player on the atp and it's some i thought about it mostly when there was this article written a while back i forget who wrote it and saying you know the time is now why aren't you not coming out of the closet the the world is your oyster blah 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 mm. blah blah and i was like well what happens when this hundredth ranked player comes out and then all of a sudden they don't feel safe to travel to dubai what's the atp doing to protect these players in countries that are notoriously not only just not gay friendly but anti-gay and violently so Mm. like are you going to be protecting them when they're playing in moscow in russia like what's your safety net for these players and so it seems that for everybody involved and sadly for I assume the few gay players that must be on tour, it's easier for everything to just not be talked about and for players to stay in the closet. Right. And I mean, both tours have made clear they're not going to protect you. Duty Sela requested to be uh, scheduled before sundown during Yom Kippur recently, and uh, that was denied. So he had to pull out of a tournament because he's an observant Jew. Right? I'm there. Are Israeli players who have been denied visas to United Arab Emirates. We see these things all the time. The leagues are not protecting them because they're protecting their new markets. Their new markets in the Gulf and in Asia. And that's not to say there's not rampant homophobia in the West or in the global North. That is certainly true. Mm-hmm. But the, the legal barriers have been chipped away a little. Honestly, I don't blame someone for not coming out. No, but do I think that we'll see an out gay player in our lifetime? I absolutely do. Yes, absolutely. It goes beyond hoping. I, I think we mm-hmm. will. Not that that's based on any <laughs> evidence or right, anything. Right. Actually, this is related to a question by uh, Samuel said this. So he said, tennis is very popular among LGBT people. For many of us, it's the only sport they even like or follow. And that's true for Sam and myself. So what's the attraction? Why why are LGBT people drawn to tennis? It seems like in disproportionate numbers. Do you have any uh, any theories about that? Well, you are the one who says that it applies to you. It doesn't apply to me. Right, it I doesn't. I have a varied, mm-hmm. I mean, 
not to bra- I'm not bragging about this, but like I, I've, I'm interested in a lot of different sports. Right. Um, for me, I think, well, I like women's sports. And I like a sport where women have excelled and reached such levels of excellence. I think tennis is a very stylish sport. So that is, that's appealing. Just the pure aesthetics of tennis you like the are appealing to me. Yeah, and well, not just the outfits, but the, I don't know, the, the way people move on court. Just everything about tennis has this sort of classic feel, right? But there's definitely something to be said about an individual sport where you feel like you, you learn to know the players, you watch them suffer, you suffer along with them. And to me, it's similar to gay men kind of idolizing divas. Mm. And and that myth making about divas because divas don't have to be only women, right? I think watching these players and you feel that they are exposing themselves so much to you is uh, it speaks to the gay experience in some way that I can't really put into words. I think there's an element of it not being a team sport that has something to do with having young gay people being able to relate to it more. Because it's something that you can play recreationally without having to join a team, without having to suffer through the locker room experience. You know, it's, it's more relatable. Yeah. The actual playing experience. Yeah, that's a good point, actually, because team sports were never appealing to me. They were actually uh, anxiety-inducing because being around that much kind of male energy as a young gay kid can be scary. And it's not scary for every gay boy, but for me it was because I, you know, I felt somehow apart from that. But the individual aspect is attractive because you're just kind of out there doing shit for yourself. And I think young gay kids learn to, to do things on their own and, and to get by on their own. I can, I can speak to this for myself. I don't know if I, it can be extrapolated to other people. Samuel, maybe you can speak to this as well in your feedback. But tennis is a sport that exhibits and demonstrates less hypermasculinity than some other sports. I know I'm not drawn to football, hockey... Uh, I'm not one to celebrate fighting in -hmm. sports. And so when it comes down to just the players against each other, getting the business done in a non-threatening, non-aggressive, non-violent way, tied into (laughs) masculinity, which is something that a lot of gay kids feel threatened by in their daily lives that's that's a cue that you can take from tennis without even necessarily being aware of it yeah i know like when i see large groups of men get really aggressive and start screaming and you know hooting and hollering acting like primates like that is so unappealing to me and it's it's threatening it's intimidating well. well it is because men are so prone to violence is that a controversial opinion? Because I don't think it is. It's not. Okay. And give them guns and then they're mass, shooter, right. mass shootings. Yeah, so I like the absence of that in tennis. There, I mean, there's certainly ways that machismo rears its head in tennis. Like, it looks different, right? And I think it's related to something I wanted to say for the previous question, that certain types of masculine affection are, are tolerated because they're understood to be straight. And this varies by culture, but you see the Spanish men kind of 
hugging, kissing, grinding up on each other, and that's not gay. But you feel that if you saw some sort of homoerotic behavior, you would recognize it. There's, there's this invisible line that somehow gets crossed, and it just flips a switch in your brain, right? We know that that behavior is not gay, because it's understood to be masculine, homosocial affection. What's your point in saying that? Um, that that's something that... What is my point? That gay people see and are endeared by? No. I don't know what my point was. <laughs> I think my point was that the macho weaves itself into tennis in different ways. Okay. So is Okay, so you're just saying that tennis is not just... It's not immune to all that fucker. Right. And just because you don't see men screaming and brooding and doing all these hyper-masculine kind of football and hockey gestures doesn't mean that masculinity isn't celebrated or pervasive in men's tennis. Mm-hmm. Do you but know what I mean? By the same token, that more genteel masculinity, even though it's demonstrably straight and understood to be straight, mm. is still more inviting and welcoming than, than the opposite. Yeah, I agree. So I hope that answers your question, Sam. One more thing really quickly before we move on. I don't think I explained this very well. As far as tennis being an individual sport, I find, and I've heard other gay people talk about this, that as young kids, you develop a very active interior life and you learn to solve problems on your own because you feel that you can't really talk to anyone about it. So that idea of tennis being deeply individual is something that I respond to because I feel that as kids, I don't know if you feel this way, that we had to confront problems by ourselves yeah and watching people do that is uh something you can relate it's something that exercises certain demons maybe maybe i'm looking in into it a little too much it's your own experience it's entirely (laughs) valid it is let's do something a little bit more light-hearted because this was a little bit deep (laughs) a little deep and we can always count on dr shoals on Shola, on Shoals Loves Tennis. Is that what Shol- it is? Wow. Shoals Talks Tennis. Shoals Talks Tennis. I'm sure he loves tennis too. <laughs> <laughs> to give us a fuck, Mary kill. And he really did good this time. <laughs> this was a tough one. It's a next gen FMK. Okay. We got Chorich, Hachinov, TFO. You go first. Oh boy. I always try to think of who has the most earning potential. Mm -hmm. um and while that probably is hatchinov i don't really think yeah you think so yeah but george could be an underwear model and make money (laughs) those are a dime a dozen these days like how much money are you going to be making oh he could be like an instagram thought yeah you don't make much money he already is Mm, true (laughs) for free uh i just can't trust you can't I can't trust a Russian man to marry at all. Is that racist? I just I just feel like there's a, a political core in the Duma in his future. <laughs> <laughs> That's offensive. Karen, I will have to kill you. I'm sorry. I mean, it, but if you fell in love with a Russian guy, that's a totally different thing. Totally. And he might be that guy, I, I don't know, to buck all those stereotypes. He is besties with Dominic Team. it seems. They're always hanging out. So that that's something else to consider. That's, that's a great endorsement. Yeah, that is... Dami a, does seem like a sweet guy. That is... Hmm. 
I'm still going to kill him for now. Okay. <laughs> and I will marry Francis, I think. So Chorich is the obvious F. Like Yes. I mean, I think. for a lot of people, Hatchinoff is the obvious F, which I totally, totally get the appeal, definitely. But Chorich, for me, TFO, I would marry him for several reasons. He seems like a nice guy. Mm-hmm. He's... American, so I wouldn't have to bother about getting a new passport or any of that. You've already gone through living in another country for mm-hmm. a man before. Right. So you don't need right. to do that again. And what did it get me? <laughs> Free health care, a cheap graduate school education. It got you a salary job with <laughs> benefits. Okay. Right. You notice I'm listing all good things. Oh, I, I missed that. I was just so prepared for your fuckery. And I get it got you, I guess. So I guess that was good. <laughs> so Fran- I, I just like Francis, and I think we probably have more in common. It will make for a more stable marriage. Though I don't have anything against Karen, I'm going to have to kill him just by process of elimination. That's it? Just by process? That's it. Yeah, I think he's attractive. But he's also already... So you let me say all the Russian stuff. Yeah. And then you're just gonna... (laughs) I mean, I'm still trying to hold out to get one of those Trump jobs. I mean, (laughs) like the whole country is going to be Trump core. Oh my God. And Karen is already married. I don't need to fuck with, like, a 20-year-old guy who's married. It's like, Mm -mm. yeah, no. (laughs) Thank you, Shola, for that. That was wonderful. What's next? Who will be higher ranked by the end of 2017, Raonic or Shapovalov? This is Canadian content, courtesy of Jacob Bubro at The Dead Hippo in California, Mm -hmm. who is also a fellow podcaster. He is co-host of the Lucky Loser Tennis Podcast. He is. Well... I think a lot of people are down on Milos right now because he's been injured. He hasn't played much of the year. I think Shapovalov is a pro. I think he's highly motivated, but I don't see him reaching that level just yet. I see he will rise, but there will definitely be a plateau because he's young. His body needs to develop. He needs to get more muscle. And that just happens at a later age for men. So I think Milos is safely the top Canadian for for a while. Barring injury. If he's healthy, he's still top 10. He's still contending for majors. That didn't happen this year. But he has the game, the experience, and the results to be there again next year. I think it would be foolhardy to assume that Dennis will come of age that quickly, Mm -hmm. to that extent. Really, how many young players are there in the top 10? Well, at... Right now, there's none. Young is 25. Yeah. Right? Grigor is 26. He's mm-hmm. in the top 10 right now. Goffin finally cracked the top 10 this year. Are we overlooking somebody? Dominic the- is 24. Yes, he's the youngest. 24 or 25? He'll be the youngest to have yeah. done it in recent time. But the average age of the top 10 is old. Mm-hmm. Like, my age old. You know? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, another one from at... S-A-N-F-77, our Italian friend, she has, like, a lot of good questions. Mm -hmm. For every mailbag, she sent in several. She's asking, feels like the tennis circus never takes a break. Which part of the season do you find the most difficult to follow slash report? Uh, Probably this this part of the season. Do you break those things into two different categories, though? To follow and then to report? Are they the same thing? Um, well, for... Because there have been times during the season where tennis has been accessible to us and going at such a breakneck speed mm-hmm. that it's been difficult for us to keep up. 
which can have a right. different feel to it than just not waking up at 5.30 in the morning <laughs> to watch Singapore. Okay. I think this part of the season fulfills both criteria, at least for me. Now that I'm working in 9 to 5, I don't have the luxury of waking up to watch tennis. I can't watch it while I'm at work. Bitch, you never did that to begin with. Well, to be quite <laughs> honest, I'm not going to do it for Luxembourg. I'm just not. <laughs> you were not that Venus fan to be waking up at 3 in the morning to watch her on the Asian swing. That no, was never you. No. So, clearly this part of the season. <laughs> February is rough, too. There are so many tournaments in February. And depending on what's happening, it can be hard to be motivated to follow it. February is difficult because you're just coming off of the Australian Open. The season is underway. You feel like we've hit that first big plateau, right? Mm -hmm. And then people are strewn all over the world. It's not just concentrated in one area. And it's smaller events. And you're like, well, just bring on Indian Wells already. You know, it has has a... uh, a lesser prestige. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. it's firmly yeah. on a lower level in the mind's eye and it's difficult to get up for those events. We just got a question live because we just solicited them from Jan S at serve for the match. She asked for each of you, what first made you a tennis fan? Seeing a particular player or tournament, learning to play yourself. When was this? Thank you for asking a question that allows us to talk about ourselves. I love that. (laughs) I can answer this. I can't think of a particular match that I that I can recall that like made me like tennis. I started playing just for fun before I actually started watching tennis. And this was on, you know, public courts. We didn't know what we're doing at all, but I just liked playing. And I think what really brought me to tennis was Jennifer Capriati around 2000, 2001, when the huge comeback was coming. And she kind of brought me in to women's tennis. And I, at that time, so much was going on. It was just a wealth of viewing opportunities. It was just crazy. I couldn't believe it. I think I've answered this before to a different question before. But my very, I have a distinct memory of my very first tennis match. It was a 1994 Wimbledon ladies final, as they say, between Conchita Martinez and Martina Navratilova. I didn't know who either of those players were. I was just watching it wide-eyed. And in the moment, for whatever reason, I was drawn to Conchita's game. My 33-year-old self weeps for that decision. <laughs> in that it could have been Martina's 10th Wimbledon. It would have been historic. She was, what, 37 at the time? Mm. She was old, older, well, ancient at that time for tennis to be in a final. And I was just drawn to Conchita's passing shots. They were amazing. She would hit, before Rafa and his banana passing shots, (laughs) she was hitting these looping, curving, down-the-line passing shots that were just captivating. Mm. And when did you start watching Andre? Because he was your first male player that you loved, right? That same fall. Okay. At the U.S. Open. I remember watching him win the U.S. Open and fall to his knees. And he was wearing that black and blue and white outfit with the hat. Mm. And the ponytail was still intact at that point. And I was like, wow, this was is... Was it? It was kind of a <laughs> clip-on ponytail. Like, this is awesome. This is amazing. I, I was totally captivated by, by Andre at that time. <laughs> Shall we get into Miss Brie? 
Should we? Shall we? She, I mean, she's floated all manner of trolly questions. This one is legitimate. Semi-legitimate. <laughs> <laughs> Brie, we, ha- we give her such a hard time. I met her in, in Charleston. She was on she, the show. Yeah, she was on the show with Chad in that underbridge. Underpass. Kind of, yes. <laughs> during a hurricane. Yeah, there was a hailstorm that happened shortly afterward. <laughs> and you didn't even pay her? Uh, maybe it happened because the weather gods knew how much of a troll she was at the time. <laughs> and we, 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 we do a lot of Brie bashing on Twitter. She can hold her own. She can. And kudos to her. But she talks a lot of mess. It's not without <laughs> merit, right? Like, Brie is messy. Like, she's messy boots. You know what? I don't know her, so I'm not <laughs> going to weigh in because we've never met. The question is how many more majors will Sloan win? And Brie is a huge Sloan fan. One of the highlights of her Charleston experience was watching Sloan on site at the Tennis Channel booth outdoors. Mm-hmm. When now, she was peg-legging all over the right? place. And lo and behold, four and a half, five months later, she's hoisting the US Open trophy, mm-hmm. her first slam, after not having played tennis for a year. It was, it was crazy, right? Sloane Stevens is a Grand Slam champion in 2017. And so, James, mm-hmm. how many more majors will Sloane win? Well, there's more to that question. Oh, the, it goes on to say two or five. If those are the only options. Those... <laughs> is zero an option or ten? Oh, you, you added the ten mm-hmm. so as to not be too messy? <laughs> no, I think... Looking at Sloan's performance in New York, there's no reason that she can't win more majors if she plays like that. I'm not in the prediction game anymore. So, Brie, I think we should just enjoy it. Yeah, you know, we don't need to be Federesque about this <laughs> in terms of trying to gobble everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I make the analogy, and Fed fans will probably hate me for this, for bringing this up again. But I think I mentioned it on the podcast early in the year at some point when probably after Australia, you know, Roger had come out of nowhere to win the Australian Open to get number 18. And all of a sudden, Fed fans were just like, You're like oh, here they come. Right. It was just like I said, it's like you have a, a 10 pound bag of rice and you're able to cook. Like 99.5% of it, but they're still out here like picking the one or two rice grains off the ground to make sure that they get everything. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. I didn't know that's where that was going, that metaphor. I've spoken to you about this before. And not that particular metaphor. Yes, I've said this. This is not the first time I've said this. Mm, Ears just turned off, I guess. Uh, So to your point, Brie, enjoy it. Not to say it won't happen again. She has the game. She has the skill set. She should have the confidence now to do it again. But I don't know. Is she a, a Sharapova type five slam champion? I don't know. Don't know. But if she is in another semifinal with a Williams, there is no way in God's green earth that I will be rooting for Sloan. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. Against almost everyone else, yes, definitely rooting for Sloan. Uh, a repeat question also from Mr. Bubro. What are your favorite episodes from The Vault? What are your favorite moments from the podcast? Yeah. 
I actually just pulled up something that I tweeted on International Podcast Day from the Body Surf, and I was trying to be self-indulgent and just finding what I felt like were our greatest hits, <laughs> so to speak, or, or the episodes that I was most proud of. I'm really happy with our episode on Serena's return to Indian Wells, because I think it was such a watershed moment in tennis in the in the past few years. It's one of, to me, the most important socially, politically, culturally moment in tennis in the past few years since we've been covering tennis. And we were lucky that it happened within the first few months that we started doing this podcast. And it also gave us the opportunity to talk about tennis in the ways that we want to talk about tennis. It's not every week that we have something that we can color outside the lines with, right? And that mm-hmm. was that gave us a bit of everything. And the the one that I particularly enjoy is why Andy Murray's feminism matters. And it ties into a lot, so many things, from the the denigration of women's tennis and the WTA to how homophobia weaves its way into tennis. Like this is where looking at sport and life through a feminist lens, an interse- intersectional feminist lens is is so all-encompassing and, and catches so much, right? Mm-hmm. And that episode, I felt we were able to do a lot with. Yeah. So I feel like I'm proud of those episodes because I think it hits on what we're trying to accomplish as a podcast and what I I think that we bring to the table. I, I also have to say, I wasn't there but I thought your interview with Mirjana Lucic-Baroni in Charleston was excellent. It's it's really one of my favorite moments from the podcast. That you took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> so and part of that is compliments to you. Thank you. But she is an just a fascinating person. She gave such just such a generous interview. That is the crux of the matter, really. Mm. Because that interview was what it was because of her. <laughs> Is there anything else you want to add with respect to favorite moments? Um, you know, we've made it through the rain. We can stand up once again <laughs> after the 2015 U.S. Open. I didn't know that I could go on. I didn't know that I could live again after Serena didn't win the calendar year Grand Slam. I was ready to pack up this podcast. Mm. I swear to you. But you know what? We just You just move on. That's life. It taught me a lot about life. Real life friend Meg. She sent us questions from the Prue questionnaire, which you may know from um, Inside the Actor Studio. So modified questionnaire. One, when and where are you most happy? I guess that is present tense. As opposed to... Oh, I was thinking like, when were you most happy? When when am I most happy presently? what, what, Mm -hmm. What is it that you're doing? What do you do that makes you most happy? Like in your regular life, mm-hmm. like if you're if you enjoy walking to the subway, you get to do that five days a week. Walking to the subway is your happy place. That's you definitely it? not it. It's not. But no. I think hitting a really good forehand is like a, a feeling like no other. Having a, like a cup of coffee of espresso that's just perfect is is my happy place. Yeah, I mean, in your 30s... Are you, are you saying you're just not a very happy person? <laughs> basically, yeah. <laughs> I mean, when someone asks, are you happy? Like, nobody actually says yes, right? I'm sure a lot of people do. Well, they're they're fooling themselves, aren't they? <laughs> I think, the, unfortunately, I'm from the East Coast, 
and we have a pretty neurotic view on life. So happiness is like where you where you can find it. It's not a state of being for me. Well, for me at the at this present time in my life, being able to move at a glacial pace, mm-hmm. as Miranda Priestley would say, <laughs> is something that I appreciate. Regular life and work and all these other things they increasingly force you to move at a breakneck speed, right? Yes. And so a simple thing like today, I was doing grocery shopping and taking all the time in the world I needed. Because you weren't with me? (laughs) Partially, yes. And that's partially why we don't do it together anymore, because you're always like looking at your pseudo watch, like fake watch on your wrist that you don't Mm. wear. Like, oh my God, do we need to be here anymore? (laughs) And then I I left and I went, and and this is a plug to the Caribbean Queen of Patties, because I found this place, it's right down the street from where we live, and it's this old lady, her name is Georgina Hamilton, she makes the best patties in Toronto. Like, most places you go, you'll be getting these frozen patties, Mm -hmm. these are hand-baked, they're not always there, sometimes you have to wait, today I waited 40 minutes while they were baking, (laughs) and you just gobble it all the way down when they're ready. It was incredible. So that's your happy place. Yeah, like she was. She's. I. She said, "Oh, it's gonna be thirty minutes." I'm like, okay, fine. I'll pop next door. I had a beer. Came back. Mm. Waited a little bit longer. Had my patty. Like not having somewhere to be, even though you were probably pr- prancing around the house, waiting on me to get home to record this episode. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. That was like five percent detracting from the experience because <laughs> I knew you so well. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, just being able to to slow it down is my happy place right now. Also from Meg, what is your favorite swear word? Fuck. I can't say it's my favorite classic. swear words on <laughs> air. I really can't. More specifically, what the fuck. I think oh. it's funny. I also like you, well, thanks to you, I've learned all the Jamaican curse words. So I'm a big fan of Ross, of Bombaclot, Rossclot. No, your favorite P-clot. is your favorite is possible. You can't say that on here. That is my favorite, actually. And it's and I've taken many, many years to try to learn how to pronounce it correctly. And it's not still not good. But you know, I can try. <laughs> I won't right now. But I mean, the Jamaican. But swear, God, swearing is so fun. Yeah, I couldn't live without swearing. the uh, The Jamaican ones are the go tos mm-hmm, because they're so evocative and they're so flexible you can (laughs) put them string them together you can separate them tack them on well that's why fuck is so good because it's a verb it's a noun it's an adjective but it's well it's common it's so common but it's it's the most versatile word and i like being able to swear at people and they don't know what it is Mm, that's true but in toronto even white people know what you're talking about that's true Mm -hmm. so thank you meg oh there's one more part Oh, she also asked, wow, this is a tough one. What is your favorite quality about yourself and your partner? About yourself? I'm sorry, Meg, I'm not going to answer that. About yourself? <laughs> about myself? No. I can, well, you know, what? my favorite quality about Meg is that she's generous. Yes, and very. And hilarious. Mm-hmm. So I know you didn't ask that, but that's my favorite quality about Meg. My favorite quality about myself <laughs> is... <laughs> I'd like to hear your answer. I'm not um, giving you one. I, I'm laughing because yeah. I want to hear your answer. Well, I think I think I'm smart. Okay. I don't think I'm particularly hardworking. So what? But am, I, what am I supposed to say? No, that was going to be my favorite thing about you. Oh, well, that's fine. Pile it on. <laughs> Modesty is not a, a, my favorite. James is very smart. 
And that is 60% of the reason why we're still together. Or why wow. I still choose him. Why I he tolerates say. all the bad things. Yeah, well, my, if you want to put it like that. My favorite thing about you is that you're funny and you're much less selfish than I am. Mm, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Back to tennis questions. Sharon Gaskin asked why, when there have been so many opportunities this year on the ATP, have so few been able to step up? I think it's becoming increasingly clear that the tier between the top guys and the next level, like the, the difference between the two is vast. Mm -hmm. That's what it boils down to, right? Yes. They may have the charisma, they may have some uniqueness, but they don't have the nerve. It's the nerve. They it's don't the have nerve. the nerve. To me, it's not even about the talent. No. About the pure talent. Everybody has talent. In the top 100, everybody yeah. has talent. Exactly. I think they're... In the past, what, five or six years, there have been so few opportunities for other people to win, especially big titles, that these other players have not learned how to win. And it doesn't come naturally. It, it's from experience. So players like Raonic, Dimitrov, Nishikori have been to the late stages, but they haven't won the big titles. And winning those titles teaches you things. And injuries play a part as well. They do. Yeah. But, you know, when... A few of the what three or four top guys are out. There are literally hundreds who could who could step in yeah. and take over, and and they really haven't. And people use this as an argument to demean the WTA, right? Serena's not there, so oh my God, look at all the different women who are winning titles, all the different women who are number one. Those are all deserving women. Those are all mm -hmm. women who played wonderful tournaments, who showed a lot of nerve. To be able to win these big titles, where are the men? Like You can sit here and be happy to have Fedal win everything in 2017, but then you can't then be praising Fedal and then telling the WTA that there's like no stars, they're not good enough because they're doing things that you can't. Because you have mm -hmm. the same opportunity to do, the, to do the same. You have these two old men out here winning everything. Right. Right? Because uh, Zverev... Could have beaten Nadal at the Australian Open. Same with Dimitrov. Mm -hmm. uh, Nick Kyrgios could have broken through in a big way this year. And uh, they just haven't put it together. And I think a lot of it is the mental game has not come together because they haven't learned how to win yet. Our other real-life friend who wrote in to ask us a question, Agnes, Agnishka, she says, Do you feel any personal changes in how you see yourself since podcast?" because of having to hear your own voice slash frame your thoughts and hear feedback. Yeah, at first hearing my own voice was very disturbing and it took a long time just to, to uh, record the first episode because I was so insecure. And now you just love the sound nope. of your voice. <laughs> <laughs> well, now I actually, I do actually listen to every episode because I, I need to hear what we did well and what we didn't. Uh-huh. No, but there have been times when I'd be like, I really, really did not like how I sounded on that podcast. Mm. And you're like, I sounded great. <laughs> <laughs> so as far as framing our own thoughts, I think since we've been doing live podcasts, which started in August on the way to Cincinnati, which was out of necessity, and now we've just done it as a habit, that has made me be a little more on the ball, a little bit quicker on the draw. And it hasn't always worked, but I think it's a good experiment we've also and a good exercise we've also prepared better yeah which helps 
hearing the feedback is tough because the good feedback is great, but that <laughs> the negative feedback really, really sticks with you, unfortunately. But it doesn't stop us from saying what we want no, to say. The thing no. that stops us from necessarily saying more and maybe being a little bit more censored is wanting to toe the line and also experience in being in press and being around tennis to learn that there's almost always more to more than what meets the eye mm-hmm. to to whatever issue may arise right right thanks agnes do you think serena williams could win the 2018 australian open that's from at drew sten one sure i think if she's back and she's healthy why not what's stopping her will she i have no idea but can she definitely would it be a Herculean task it, to achieve? It certainly would. It yeah. absolutely would. Yeah. But if we have learned nothing from Serena Williams' career, or I should say if we've learned anything from Serena Williams' career, is to not count her out. Right. And finally, from at Dropshot Lob, can we talk about not here to make friends Pova and Monica Puig? <laughs> Without any disrespect to Monica's incredible efforts in Puerto Rico. Well, Dropshot Lob, thank you for the timely question because this is something we were going to talk about regardless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so we'll just talk about it now. Yeah. Maria Sharapova, with all the horrible gaffes her PR team made throughout the whole doping suspension thing, this is what peak Sharapova PR looks like. <laughs> right? That's very cynical. It is very cynical. Um... And I don't doubt that there is some sincerity and genuineness in it. But why this cause, why this time, why this partnership? Mm. Monica was the one who extended the olive branch in the off-season last year. Yes, they played an exhibition, To do the exhibition in Puerto Rico, I think it was. So there's that built-in history. There is the need, let's be frank, to still continue the image rehabilitation. And there's also a natural disaster where people are suffering. So this is a win-win situation all around. It's, it's absolutely perfect for her. And I don't think we can look at this from an entirely altruistic perspective to be like, oh my God, Maria, you are like the bomb. This is amazing. Your heart is full. Like, let's recognize that there there are multiple facets to this. It's a good thing, but there's other parts to it as well. You may be surprised. Listeners may be surprised that I took a much less skeptical approach to this. I said, you know what? I've been so critical and harsh on Maria in the past. This is a classy thing to do and good for her. She's dedicating the all the profits from Sugar Pova for the rest of the year to Puerto Rican hurricane relief. And what was impressive to me is that she's actually there. Yes. That she and Monica went together. Mm -hmm. And it's not just she's sending money. Sure, you could say she's parachuting in for the photo op and then leaving. But she's there doing the work. Like, she made the effort. So good on her. Like, I'm impressed. That is true as well. I'm just saying there are multiple things that are true. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, if I were to be, will you allow me a moment to be a little bit shady? Uh, just a moment just a moment for the years uh, maybe it's maybe it has to do with the confectionery uh tastes of people in mason ohio but for the three <laughs> years that we've been to cincinnati have you seen anybody buy sugar povo <laughs> i've seen a lot of it we've it's seen on it. sale it's on well sale. 
I bought it the first year as a gift. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm being needlessly bitchy right now. Mm-hmm. That is really bitchy. Mm. As you said, good for Maria. And speaking of Monica Puig, she beat Kerber in her first round in Luxembourg and then made it all the way to the final. Her first final since the Olympics. It is a huge turnaround for her. She gave a very emotional, very touching speech, her runner-up speech. She lost to who? Karina Withoft in the mm-hmm. final. And I'm just like, I'm standing for Monica. I have been for a long time. You love She's, that LS dress. The, her LS kits are incredible. But I just, I'm, I'm a big fan and really happy for her, especially at this painful time that she was able to kind of find her mojo again. Do you want to talk about Serena fans? Serena fans, man. This is why... Now I need you to, to recapture the feeling that you had when you first mm-hmm. broached this topic to me. <laughs> because I don't want to be caught in another situation where I'm the one when being you're attacked the bad guy? on social uh-huh. media. Well, this is why I cannot align myself fully with the army. Because they do shit like this. Alina Svitolina was quoted by Tennis World USA as saying, Serena dominated for a long time, but now we are in a different era. She was savaged, gored for this by Serena's army. And uh, she came out and she was like, I did not say that. I was misquoted. She said I did not say era. She didn't say anything about era. Because people were mocking her that, how is it a different era when Serena just won the Australian Open while pregnant in January, not 10 months ago. But... Here's my thing. It's like, first of all, are y'all so bored? You have nothing to do that Serena is gone, that, that is, you have to attack Svitolina for this, for this totally innocuous statement. Even if she said exactly what was quoted, who cares? Like, I, I just don't get it. You don't want a tour full of players who want to beat the best player? I do. As a Serena fan... I want the best players to come for her and she can show them the door because that is more impressive. So you like what pissed me off is that you criticize these girls, these women for laying down dead against Serena because they're scared. Mm -hmm. But you also criticize them when they want to beat her. So which is it? Like, how can they win? Something else that I've noticed about Serena fans is that you could be having the most innocuous conversation about something and then it always pivots back to how Serena is greater than whatever it is you were talking about, right? <laughs> so you could be saying, oh my God, I was outside today and I could not believe how blue the sky was. And then you hear, well, you know, it might have been blue, but that 2017 Australian Open, when, you know, Serena won, the sky was even bluer because she won that day. <laughs> you know? like, it's, And I'm like... You know, Michelle Obama has two Ivy League degrees. Like, I don't give a fuck. Serena has 24 Grand Slam, bitch. (laughs) My thing here is, if Svitolina wants to say, well, Serena not here. This is a different era. We're about to fuck it up in here. That's cool. Like, that's totally fine with me. And when Serena comes back and she's still saying, yeah, I want to beat Serena. What is the problem with that? Do you remember in Flawless, Chimamanda Adichie had that great verse, that Mm -hmm. spoken word verse, where she said, women should not be competing for the affections of men. 
but she thinks it can be a good thing when women compete for jobs or for achievements, for opportunities. This is what it looks like. This is women at a very high level in their chosen career competing for accolades and achievements. That's what should be happening. It seems that for a lot of Serena fans in particular, and I guess you could say Williams fans, there's there's this... I don't. It's not concerted, because I, I'm not even sure it's conscious. But the net effect is that you end up cutting down women all the time to elevate Serena. Mm. And Serena and Venus don't need your elevation. No. I mean... They're out here... She's not paying attention? No, they're out here earning their own coin, writing their own receipts. And so what we need to do is have a culture in the tennis discourse as tennis fans where we can be more charitable and understanding and cast a wider net. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's just not what Twitter is for. <laughs> maybe we're barking up the wrong maybe. tree. Because, of course, we we have gone hard on things, right? That we're probably, we've probably been too, what's the word, draconian? Mm-hmm. Too polemical? It happens. But I just don't, I don't get the point of cutting down Serena's competitors because it doesn't make her greater. It makes her greater if she's playing people who are at the peak of their powers. And it's one thing if it's deserved. There have been plenty of people for whom it's been deserved. Yeah. This I mean, was not one of them. Save it for Sharapova. I know I am. <laughs> okay. We're moving on from the mailbag. Thank you so much, everyone, for your questions. Like, you all are should be reporters. Like, you have really good questions. And it's it's fun to be able to answer them. Now, as you mentioned earlier, we finally, finally saw a battle of the sexes in theaters. And we did spend about 10 minutes in the wrong theater. Um, Whose fault was that? That's very confusing. Whose fault theater. was that? Um, it was the theaters. Mm. Because the sign was outside the theater we went into. And then I didn't know there was like this miniature alcove that was actually our mm-hmm. theater that had about four seats. See, what had happened was you couldn't get out of your own way in needing to rush to the theater to catch the previews. You were so concerned with that that you didn't pay no. attention to the signs. You need to get a good seat and everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know why you just can't be ready when I say we have to be ready. <laughs> we end up getting into this theater and it's huge. I mean, huge. And there's literally five people there. And we're like, okay, it's 6.50, movie's supposed to start, not starting. And I look over and then there's a young kid with his mother. I'm like, oh, this is clearly Battle of the Sexes. Oh, that's so mm. cute. Like, the youngin is here for his history, mm. you know? And then the, something starts playing and we're like, um, mm, this doesn't like, seem this is like... not it. Like, check which theater on the ticket. And you're like, oh, it's the wrong one. And like, this is, a, this is a climate change movie. I don't know what this is. <laughs> I still don't know what it was. So we went into the other theater and it was, I swear to you, it was your grandmother's living room. It was full of old people. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah, this is the right theater. Yep. And they had about five rows. It was very small. It's like when we go to watch a Judy Dench film. I was so mad. We missed the first 10 minutes. So if you all could tell me what happened in the first 10 minutes, I'd be very grateful. But the rest of the movie, I really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Of course, it indulges in those typical biopic conventions some of them are a little bit hokey but 
overall, first of all, I can't believe this film got made and got a wide release, but Emma Stone, man, I was impressed. I'm not an Emma Stone hater like a lot of people, but I feel like she really got Billie Jean. I think she really, really tried. And the way the film was shot helped with the likeness between Mm -hmm. the two, because when you pan away from Emma Stone, it becomes less believable. But there were a lot of shots where they focused on getting as much of the face filling the screen as possible, Mm -hmm. where you couldn't make those immediate comparisons. And then you were able to focus more on the glasses and the stuff that they made obvious to be likenesses. Mm. You know, like the hair, the eyes. And I'm not really looking for an impersonation when I watch movies like that. Of course, something like Jamie Foxx's Ray Charles is really impressive. But I'm looking for someone who tries to interpret who this person was or is. Mm -hmm. And it's such a difficult task for Emma because Billie Jean King is alive. And she was also active in the making of the film. She's not decrepit. She's out here still working, still being an activist. She's a very visible figure. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of pressure in playing her. And Billie Jean seemed to love it. So that's a big stamp of approval. Yeah, she did. (laughs) And there there was a lot of focus on the, the whole lesbian aspect of yes it. yes so there was a lot of stuff about the birth of the wta and the love story was well not the most prominent story was a big part of it mm-hmm. and i appreciated that and i mean i get it i fell in love with marilyn too like andrea <laughs> riceborough played marilyn billy jean's hairdresser who she developed a relationship with while she was still married to the very sexy larry king not the same Larry King. No, not that one. And I, I, I just believed their connection. And there was something totally magical about, about Andrea Riceboro's performance. The film did not paint Margaret Court in a positive light. Ooh, girl. To say the least. Here's the thing. Obviously, Billie Jean and Margaret are not friends. Margaret has been a thorn in tennis's side for many many years that we only tolerate because tennis australia basically has to Mm -hmm. because she's such a decorated champion i feel like they probably told the truth and that's what that's what it looks like they probably gave her a free pass in a lot of ways is what i think because if you think margaret court who she is now was a pain in the ass Mm -hmm. what do you think she was back then when those opinions were accepted. Yeah. When that was the mainstream. But what she's comfortable saying publicly in 2017, imagine what she said privately as, in 1973. As the world number one player. Right. As the woman player with the most titles mm-hmm. at that time. The tennis itself, you remarked, looked pretty realistic, actually. That was one of my favorite parts mm-hmm. of watching the film because... You get to see the recreation of these old school style points in color and on big screen in ways that you can't watch anymore. This this tennis doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. And they did a good job of, of recreating and making it look real, to be frank. It did, yeah. You said they used a body double for Emma? Yes. There is a body double who played Billie Jean in those action sequences, Mm. who apparently is attempting to make it on the WTA tour right now. 
And something I noticed, and you said you didn't pick up on it, is that the one difference that I saw in terms of the technical aspect of the, the strokes was when Billie Jean would hit that forehand, would f actually hit through the forehand, you saw a lot more wrist action and topspin oh. <laughs> in the actual form and technique mm -hmm. than you would back then. Right. Which, which makes sense because it's a contemporary player mm -hmm. doing it. Steve Carell, any thoughts? I know you're not the biggest fan of Steve Carell. He did a, a much more than serviceable job. Mm -hmm. And he, he was tasked with playing a clown. Mm -hmm. And I think like the film got who Bobby was. Because I think in the, in the public's view, Bobby was a pig. He's disgusting. He's this example of a bygone era of machismo. But Billie Jean tells it differently. I really want to know what the truth is about all this stuff. Because I feel like the Battle of the Sexes has been codified as one thing mm. right now in history. Right. It is what it is. We can only think of it as one thing. But there have been reports as to whether uh, the match was rigged by rigs or whatever. That doesn't, in right, my mind, yeah. But basically because he had gambling debts. Yeah. And that doesn't diminish the achievement or what it it what it meant to women's professional sports, you know? No, because it was always already spectacle. Yes. And I also want to know the truth about Bobby Riggs. Like, I want to know who he was. Obviously, mm -hmm. I imagine the persona that he put, put forth to sell that event was probably not exactly who he was in his private life. There have been reports, and Billie Jean will even say this, that he wasn't as bad as that. Well, and that she developed a close friendship with him. Yeah. And she had a lot of respect for his tennis achievements. Mm -hmm. So like, I, I just want to know the truth about these people in, that were involved in this, mm -hmm. in this uh, spectacle. One thing that I left the theater thinking about is so much of the birth of women's tennis is framed by the Battle of the Sexes. And popular imagination in North America, I know my parents remember watching it, and that was that was a big touchstone for them when I became interested in tennis. That was one of tennis' most mainstream moments, and it's it's interesting and maybe a little sad that this momentous occasion, this birth of women's tennis, that women fought for, sacrificed their careers. They didn't know if they would have. They were blackballed from every Grand Slam for the rest of their lives. It was such an incredible story that sometimes get gets eclipsed by the Battle of the Sexes, by the spectacle that Billie Jean never even wanted to do. So now we have kind of the only film about women's tennis, and it's about the Battle of the Sexes. Mm -hmm. When in fact the real heroism is starting the tour. Right. Signing that that those, was the hard part. Signing those $1 contracts, being told that you won't be able to play the Grand Slams, not knowing if you have a sponsor, not knowing where you'll be getting the paycheck, going from week to week, living out of motels, two to a room, selling your own tickets by the corner of the street to these tournaments. Like, they are doing everything. If, if the WTA at the start of, at its, at its inception, were a film, the players would have been the writers, the producers, the camera people, <laughs> you know, set design. Right. They did right. everything. With Gladys Heldman finding the money. Yeah, they laid their own courts. 
Yeah. Right? They laid down the courts and could barely find time to practice because they had all this other stuff to do. Meanwhile, they're competing for the number one ranking. Right. Against Margaret Court, who grudgingly played on the women's tour. She, I mean, she basically just swooped in and played the tournaments and won while other people did the hard work. Mm -hmm. And so now she's in a very vaunted position of just bitching about lesbians, where Ooh. lesbians made her fortune. Can we talk about shit Chrissy says? <laughs> <laughs> I laughed. Because oh, my God. If there is ever a time where you need something for Chrissy to be off base on, yes. there's probably a video of it somewhere. <laughs> well, there it was in the movie. I know. That's what I'm saying. Mm. Even back then. They were showing interviews with tons of famous people at the time, real life clips about who they think is going to win. And most people said Bobby. A few men said Billie Jean. And there's Chrissy Everett, little 16, 17-year-old Chrissy saying, you know, I think Bobby Riggs is going to win. I think he's in, in good form. <laughs> <laughs> I died. <laughs> And you know that Billie Jean and Martina probably give Chrissy so much shit. Because Martina wasn't around in 71, 72. Can you imagine Chrissy, if 1980s Martina were there to start that shit with Billie Jean? Right. Can you imagine? <laughs> but Chrissy was really under the tutelage of her family at that time. Uh -huh. And she was a kid and she decided not to play in the WTA. Her father wanted her to play for the US LTA. And she says, to this day, I was a kid. I didn't know. And Billy kind of ribs her about it. And I don't think she takes it personally. She was a kid. Yeah. Right? But They were all Chrissy, kids when they started out well, in true. those days. But Chrissy is, is really the first true beneficiary of what the original nine did. Mm -hmm. She's the first superstar. She's the first one to win those big titles and make that money. Something, two things that came to mind to wrap up here as I left the theater. When the credits are being played, when they're giving you these little written descriptions as to what happened after the fact, I sat there and thought like, wow, Billie Jean really did that. And like, we will never know the full extent of what she and those other women went through and right. did mm -hmm. for us to have a WTA being fucked up by Steve Simon. <laughs> right? Like, how is it that what happened then seems to have gotten lost and muddied over the years to the point where they're not as celebrated as they should. Mm -hmm. Like we, we think of Billie Jean King as, you know, she's on the National Tennis Center. It's named after her. We see her from time to time come out. She was at the US Open giving a speech, what have you. But do we know for sure? We do. But like, how are the young folks to know what exactly went on when these histories are not being told. Mm -hmm. And players from other countries who yeah. may not feel any sort of uh, affinity, affinity or, or a sense of history that they play on that tour that Billie Jean and those other eight women founded. Yeah. Uh, like what it, what which is, is understandable. What are the lessons that are being taught to these young players today by the WT? It's their responsibility to keep this message alive. Mm -hmm. And I think as the biggest women's sport in the world, with this exciting history, with so many stories to tell over the last four, 50 years. And with all of them like, still alive yeah. and still active and so visible in tennis, it's such a no-brainer. Like the WTA needs to celebrate its history and sell it. I, because 
fine. <laughs> you know, they need to make money. This is a way to make money. There has to be a way to package this and and sort of write down this history before it's lost and before the, the primary sources are gone. Because, man, after Billie Jean King did all of that, then we get into the 80s and her and Martina are pushed out of the closet. They're the first high-profile lesbians in American sport. Uh, Martina defects from Soviet or from communist Czechoslovakia in the midst of being a gay woman who's outed. I mean, the stories are incredible. Mm-hmm. The courage that these women showed. And they're all pals today. Mm-hmm. Like, they went through all that, had to fight each other. They had to work together, then fight each other. And then when they didn't have to work together and only had to fight each other, they still found a way back in the end. <laughs> you know, bucking mm. all the narratives about what female friendship and competitiveness is like. Mm. Yeah, I love, I mean, I walked out thinking, God, like Billie Jean King is a singular figure mm-hmm. in the 20th century. She's an absolute towering figure. And we know people who know her. Like that to have one degree of separation is yeah. crazy. Like I talk to people in Cincinnati who've been in the same room and I'm like, what? We were talking with Courtney Nguyen about mm. this in Cincinnati, specifically the film because she'd seen it ahead of time before its release, right? And she's somebody who had put Billie Jean's pearls on. <laughs> <laughs> on Billie Jean. On Billie not Jean. on herself. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and like it's crazy to really get a full grasp of how much these people really mean. And I guess that mm-hmm. will never fully happen until they die. Right. Right? But man, Billie Jean is something else. And to those people who are so, so caught up in numbers and titles, this is somebody for whom titles don't even come close to capturing their greatness. Because you think about how oh, much yeah. more Billie Jean could have done had she not taken this upon herself. As she was out there promoting her tour, trying to find sponsors when she should have been practicing or sleeping or, mm-hmm. you know, there was just so many other things that modern tennis players don't don't worry about. Well, this is it. This is the end of a very gay episode 100. Yeah, we're going to forego the, the weekly tennis updates, I think. You know where to find that. Yeah. <laughs> like I said, Monica Puig is back in a final... Great week for German tennis. I thought you said you were going to forego that. But I have to drop in. Because Sanga's in there, right? Oh, my God. Won a title. I mean, he's all over these 250s in Europe. He's a non-factor at majors now, sadly. He's he's multiple titled in 2014. He's got four. Four. Yeah. And Demir Jomor won his second. Mm Mm-hmm. So, exciting week for tennis. Singapore is going on now. Basel, Paris, all these things are coming up. I'm ready to go cook that lobster. Mm -hmm. So congrats to you. When he FMKs me good, take his ass to Red Lobster. What? (laughs) What? It was a callback to F. Mary Kill. I understand. It was just like (laughs) such a leap. (laughs) Uh, Thanks for joining me on this ride, this unexpected ride. And thank you to the listeners for... Jumping on that train with us. Yeah. And some of y'all have been there since day one. Mm-hmm. So we appreciate it. We're trying to do a good job for you week in and week out. 
you know where to, you should know where to find us by this time, right? <laughs> by now. On on Twitter, I am Jonathan at tennis underscore John. I'm James and I'm at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's at the body serve on Twitter and Instagram. And we'll be back at some point with some Singapore stuff, some Paris stuff. Whenever 101 feels like it's ready to be birthed, it shall be in your inboxes. <laughs> Till next time. <laughs> <laughs>